Tune into Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. This is Disrupt Radio, live on DAB and streaming at disrupt.radio. Conscious Capital, net profit to net zero. Hi, I'm Tane Hunter, and you're listening to Conscious Capital, where we explore the cutting edges of science, technology, and human progress to help individuals and organizations understand what's coming next. On this show, you'll hear from scientists, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are all on a mission to foster intelligent, optimistic thinking about the future. You'll learn that there are better ways of doing things in the 21st century and how you can be a part of creating and investing in a fair and sustainable future for all. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. Hi, welcome to Conscious Capital. I'm Tane Hunter. My background is in cancer research, data science, and machine learning. I'm also the co-founder of Future Crunch, which is not only a breakfast cereal for robots, but also a think tank that seeks out stories of human progress and ingenuity and works with current and emerging leaders to ensure they're creating a sustainable business that works for people and the planet. We're focused on solutions rather than just talking about the problems. We research the science, technology, and the tools humanity has created to help solve some of the world's biggest challenges. Later in the show, we are going to dive into courage and leadership in business, and you'll hear about the kind of mental flexibility that is essential for leadership and success in business. To help us with that, we'll hear from Kyla Colbin, one of my favorite entrepreneurs. She is the co-founder of BOMA Global and the CEO of BOMA New Zealand, she is also a co-founder and trustee of the nonprofit Ministry for Awesome, which sounds pretty awesome. She's also the chairman of the board of the New York-based Natural Gourmet Institute for Health and Culinary Arts. Yum. She's trained with Brene Brown and is a certified Dare to Lead facilitator and has worked with hundreds of people to increase courage as a core competency. She's a climate project ambassador who trained with Al Gore. Basically, I can go on. She's just pretty amazing. And she always brings smiles to the faces of those around her. Speaking of spicy, smiley, smart sapiens, today I have the incredible pleasure of being joined by a lovely member of our Future Crunch team and our co-host, Dr. Shasta Henry. How are you, Shasta? I am apparently spicy, smiley, and smart, so I'm feeling good. Thanks, Tane. Well, that's certainly about... (laughs) That's certainly been my experience. So tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners. Sure thing. So my name is Shasta Henry. I'm an ecologist and entomologist from Lutruwita, Tasmania. So I study bugs. Uh, I study how invertebrates act as building blocks of ecosystems. And most recently, I have been focused on the long-term after effects of changing fire regimes in Australia, effectively a symptom of climate change. And Shasta and I, being nerds and scientists, love working together. And we because do. We're really just excited about what's going on in the world. I mean, right now there are 10 people living in space and a 3D printed titanium garden gnome, aptly named Noam Chomsky, is orbiting our planet. <laughs> 
Back here on the planet we call home, Japanese scientists have used cosmic ray muons. These are showers of particles that erupt when cosmic rays collide with Earth's atmosphere. So they've used these to calculate a person's position in a building's basement. This is a location in which GPS doesn't work. So this breakthrough might just give humanity a viable underground navigation system. I think the teenage mutant ninja turtles would be stoked. Turtle power. Turtle power. Now, if you've listened to us before, you know that the top of the show is usually dedicated to science and technology. But today, humans have done such a good job. We are celebrating ourselves as the beautifully engineered machines that we are. So to begin, we have some news about news. After years of fear-mongering, news organizations are now completely ignoring the incredible decrease in U.S. homicide rates. There is an Indian city where nobody goes hungry thanks to the Sikh practice of Siva. I've been there. It's awesome. And a malaria vaccine in Kenya has resulted in a noticeable drop in deaths of children. Lithuania has achieved remarkable success in reducing the social impact of alcohol. Alabama is the first U.S. state to lay out a strategy to end cervical cancer deaths. Well, that's nice. That is nice of them. Diversity increased by 38% on the boards of America's largest companies last year. The United Kingdom has broadened a plan to clear women's historic convictions for homosexuality. That sounds totally gay. I'm in. I'll be with you. And Germany has agreed to pay over a billion dollars in reparations to Holocaust survivors. Remarkable. And the number of people who die after a breast cancer diagnosis in England has decreased by a whopping two-thirds since the 1990s. Now, the scientists have confessed they knew that mortality had been reduced during the past two decades, but they didn't know by how much. And they say it's awesome. Estonia has become the first ex-Soviet state and the 35th country in the world to pass a law legalizing same-sex marriage, which goes into effect on the 1st of January 2024. They say that this is a decision that doesn't take anything away from anyone, but it does give something important to many. And India might be the next country to follow suit. And a recent poll on global attitudes show that 53% of Indians actually feel positive about same-sex marriage, even though it remains illegal in India, or should we say, for now? This is some truly good news, and all these stories are great. So why is it the first time that most of us are hearing about it? We can actually account for some of that with neuroscience, the way that our brains work. You see, on a daily basis, we're inundated by a fire hose of negative news. So it stands to reason that we might believe that the world is falling <coughs> apart. But as we've just shown you, we're actually doing a much better job of saving the planet than the news headlines would report. You see, we have a bunch of evolutionary hangovers, things called cognitive biases, which influence the way that we as people prioritize and process information. Like, did you know you're something like three times more likely to commit a negative experience to memory uh, than, than a positive one? And that makes evolutionary oh, sense. Yeah. We're all here <clears throat> listening today as the successful descendants of people who avoided lions in the it. grass because they weren't distracted by, by butterflies. So we're literally designed to be aware of danger. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Oh my. <laughs> 
But then you take us, you put us into this, our new hyper-connected world. We've got 24-hour news cycles and, and we can't tell the difference between a threat that is near us and a war that is affecting people on a completely different continent. Finally, that is precisely what the industrial news complex was designed to do, capitalise on the currency of our attention. So they show us flashing lights and bold headlines that make us outraged. In fact, that's why Future Crunch chose to push back against the torrent of negativity. Instead, highlight human progress thanks to human innovation. We believe that you deserve to feel as good as the evidence supports. That's why we call it intelligent optimism. And why we like to start each show by reminding you and ourselves of the good stuff that's happening. A healthy dose of fact-based and inspiring good news that can give us all hope that a better future can be built. And if we truly want to change the story of the human race in the 21st century, we have to start telling ourselves new stories. So Shasta, let's do it. Let's share some good news. Did you know that we've put such a big dent in diseases like malaria that we now have a neglected tropical disease roadmap? Because of this, cases of guinea worm have declined to almost zero globally. See, guinea worm is transmitted via unclean water. It means that this is a disease of poverty, which disproportionately affects women and children in the African countries where the parasite is endemic. And guinea worms are nasty little things. After mm-hmm. people are infected by drinking contaminated water, the larvae penetrate the walls of the intestine and migrate through your body. The fertilized female worm, which is 60 to 100 centimeters in long, so not small, migrates and bores holes in your skin tissue until it reaches an exit point. Generally in your lower limbs, like oh, between your toes, it's disgusting. It forms oh, a b- no. blister and swelling and it pops out. Um, and the worm takes 10 to 14 months to emerge after infection. So it's uh, tunneling in your body for a while. Now to soothe the burning pain, patients often immerse their infected part of the body in the water. And then the worms release thousands of tiny little baby worms larvae into the water. And so the wonderful horror show that is the circle of life begins again. Oh, nature, you really shouldn't have. (laughs) We're trying to be advocates here and nature goes ahead and just does something like that. Anyhow, in in 1986, there were about 3.5 million cases of guinea worm in 21 countries. But today... The disease persists in only three of those countries. Cases are still dropping every year. There were 27 cases in 2020, 15 in 2021, and only 13 in 2022. Now, this disease is actually untreatable. So that control has been achieved purely through education and intervention. That is thanks to some remarkable leadership all the way from the World Health Organization down to the community health volunteers. Go volunteers, takes everyone. In more news from healthcare, a synthetic biology company from Cambridge, England, says it can reprogram tens of millions of human stem cells at a time into highly defined and mature human cell types with an unparalleled level of consistency. Now, the company says its innovation is so disruptive that it will do for stem cell biology what CRISPR-Cas9 has done for genetics. That is a big claim. It is. 
Well, for the first time after more than a decade of work by researchers in France and Switzerland, a paralyzed man has regained the ability to walk naturally using only his thoughts. And this is thanks to two implants that restored communication between his brain and his spinal cord. That's another big one. Yeah, pretty sci-fi. And so a device in the person's brain decodes the patterns involved in walking from the brain and sends a signal to a device that is implanted in the spinal cord. The spinal cord is then stimulated by electrodes in a precise sequence that activates leg muscles needed to walk. The device provides a digital bridge, so to say, between the brain and the spinal cord that bypasses an injured area. The brain-spine interface uses AI to read the brain's intentions and then matches them to muscle movements, allowing people with spinal cord injuries and paralysis to walk again. While everyone else tweets about AI killing us all and taking all our jobs, well, researchers at NYU have built a large language model from millions of medical notes. This is using more than 380,000 patients' electronic records. The model was then able to correctly identify 85% of patients who eventually passed away and 80% of those who were admitted and The model was correctly able to identify 85% of patients who eventually passed away and also 80% of those who were eventually readmitted. That's compared to a team of doctors who only predicted 78 and 75% of cases using the same information. All right, let's switch gears here. Over one third of all food produced is lost or wasted. Around 2 billion tons of food costing the global economy close to a trillion dollars each year. We do not have a food production problem. We have a wastage, sharing, and supply chain problem. So, what to do? Well, there are some innovative solutions out there. For example, South Korea keeps 90% of its food waste out of landfills and turns most of that into animal feed, fertilizer, and fuel. The success of composting in South Korea wasn't inevitable and didn't magically emerge from Korean culture. It was designed and can be replicated. For example, at the end of each day, the food waste from restaurants goes into a special bin for reuse and recycling. There's a similar situation in Japan. In Japanese households, recycling goes into four or five different bins. Anywhere that items aren't properly cleaned or sorted, they won't be collected. This allows for social policing, which has actually resulted in really high rates of community participation. Further than that, there's actually some prefectures that have even made a whopping zero-waste declaration. Here, they separate their waste into 45 different streams of recyclables. There's metal caps, there's nappies and menstrual pads, even mirrors and thermometers get their own stream. But Japan is the second highest consumer of plastic waste globally. So one huge limitation in Japan's recycling goal is simply space on the ground. That means that one of these most incredible solutions has actually been creating islands from garbage, not only for waste disposal, but once the land has been rehabilitated. Uh, For instance, two islands in the Bay of Tokyo played host to the 2020 Olympics. The city of Melbourne is on board too, where I'm speaking to you today from. We've recently installed some new floating islands, but they're not made of trash. They're made from interlocking garden beds planted to replicate the wetlands which have been lost through human urbanization. 
On the first night of installation, even before the platforms were vegetated, they were utilized by Rakali, a native water rat found in rivers and cities all over Australia. The immediate flourishing of the Rakali and other critters in the half-finished wetlands is a clear indication of how happy the wildlife is to have these resources back. Good for them. That is certainly a plus one for biodiversity. And if you like, you can follow the Birurung trial floating wetlands on iNaturalist, an app that uses AI to help identify different species of flora and fauna. And you can be a citizen scientist and help out. It will take a photo of a plant or an animal. It will identify it for you and give time and geolocation as well. So go out there, be a citizen scientist. You can do it too. (laughs) <laughs> now, Birarung, if people haven't heard that before, that's a Wiradjuri Woiwurrung word. It describes the lower reaches of the Yarra, the river that runs through Melbourne, where you are, Tane, yeah. Yeah, the Eastern Kulin Nation. Now, we know that Indigenous peoples and traditional owners protect and steward over 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity – and that Indigenous knowledge can help prevent environmental crises. However, much of the global conversation around land management and conservation excludes the skill and knowledge of Indigenous leaders and local experts based on the language that they speak. Indeed, a worldwide study has shown that our existing global assessments almost completely overlook important conservation science by ignoring non-English language literature. That is a lot of valuable conservation data mm. and knowledge around the world that we are simply not benefiting benefiting from. But advances in natural language processing, NLP, and other AI technologies can translate text from one language to another, and they've really reached the stage where they can now provide extremely accurate and fluid translations between languages. Now, with proper training, AI translation models can give indigenous experts access to participate in global conversation about conservation in their first languages. Generative AI can be taught to employ models that better reflect indigenous perspectives, such as relational obligations and multi-generational responsibility when thinking about landscape management. Tune into Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. Conscious Capital. All right, Shasta, I'm really getting addicted to this good news. Hit me. Hit me with another. (laughs) Okay, well, the EU's highest decision-making body just gave the final go-ahead for a new rule designed to stop the import of any products that destroy forests. So the cutoff date has even been backdated, meaning that only products produced on land that has not been deforested or degraded since the 31st of December 2020, only these products will be allowed to be imported into the EU. And a big win again from our own backyard. The state of Victoria has announced that the logging of native forests will stop at the end of this year. About time. Yeah, and this one is personal. I've been to some of the protests. And even the most optimistic activists weren't expecting this victory. The announcement includes significant funding for a just transition for forestry workers who could be displaced. So that's great. That's wonderful news for the trees and for the tree fellers. Meanwhile, the clean energy revolution keeps on trucking, and China is at the coal face. China has added 22 gigawatts of coal plants this year. It is unfortunately a staggering amount, but it's only a quarter of the 87 gigawatts of clean energy that's been added during the same period. 
As soon as that difference becomes greater than the increase in energy demand, then China's emissions will start falling. This is really one of the biggest stories in clean energy and climate change. Now, I have been doing my homework. I so last week, <laughs> last week we spoke to Heidi Lee, who encouraged me to go and check out the East Gate building in Harare in Zimbabwe. So I did. Gold star. And it is a 30,000 square meter building. It's full of offices and a whole shopping center. The entire thing is passively cooled. I mean, it only takes 10% of the energy necessary to regulate a standard building of the same size. In fact, even if they turn on the AC, still only needs 35% of the regular energy. How did they pull that off? That is a minute amount of energy to make that happen. Electric heating and cooling accounts for roughly 20% of global carbon emissions. So that's awesome. That's why Heidi uh, was so excited about it. It's why I'm so excited about it. The building is based on the kind of cooling that occurs in termite towers. So there's a massive thermal mass in the middle uh, of the building which absorbs heat during the day, and that is vented through a central chimney at night, and the building is refreshed with cool night air which is drawn in through, through side vents. Uh, although they also added other things like um, wide eaves to block the sun from hitting the sides of the buildings. And that is a uh, action that's taken in most traditional African homes. Cool. I love biomimicry, using nature to help us along. All right, you're the bug doctor. Have you ever seen one of these awesome termite towers? I actually haven't. It is far too cold where I live for termites. Uh, but have you? Yeah, I was in the NT and went to Kakadu last year, a stunning part of the world. But yeah, they have giant termite mounds that literally tower 10, 15 meters into the air. I mean, and it's stunning and it's a harsh environment. It is hot and and a tough place to set up shack, but they managed to do it very well. This one I love. Uh, I know that we're talking to Kyla later in the show, and this uh, really put me in mind of... Uh, so uh, Dutch bike brand Van Moof showed some really remarkable business leadership. They were tracking the shipping and they noticed that when they uh, started a new route into the United States, they also recorded unprecedented levels of bike damage during deliveries. Firstly, they invested heavily in tougher boxes and their new carriers, even better padding, and none of that solved the problem because the real problem was culture. U.S. carriers simply didn't care about bikes. You know what they do care about? TVs. Yeehaw! I can attest to that. <laughs> so finally, they added a picture of a TV onto their big flat bike box. And what they witnessed was a drop in US shipping damages by 80%. That is enormous for a company. On top of that, the Dutch government is set to permanently shut down Europe's largest fossil gas field in less than four months, accelerating the closure timeline by over a year. The field has been a key source of gas for much of Western Europe, as well as a backbone of the Dutch public finance system since production commenced in the 1960s. So nice change happening over the, across the pond. We've got some good news for animals as well. Good news for whales. 
blue whale populations are making a comeback off both the west and east coasts of the United States. And in northern cooler waters, Iceland has suspended this year's whale hunt, hopefully heralding the end of a controversial practice that has been in terminal decline for years. Also in Canada, phasing out chemical toxicity testing on animals thanks to amendments to its Environmental Protection Act. This also signals the end of a totally horrible practice that is exposed rats and mice, fish, even birds, to testing for the sake of human protection for decades. Speaking of good news for our furry little friends, last week the U.S. Department of Agriculture allowed two companies, Upside Foods and Good Meat, to sell lab-grown meat. This ruling makes the United States the second country in the world, following Singapore, where consumers can purchase lab-grown meat. What do you reckon, Shasta? Would you get some? Absolutely. So this is different from like impossible meat, which is vegetable based, correct? This is lab grown meat. Yeah, made from animal cells in the lab and sometimes even 3D printed, but it is true meat, but without a massive animal and without the cruelty. Absolutely. I've eaten crickets. I would definitely eat lab grown meat. Yeah, me too. Mm. All right. MIT engineers have unveiled a new compact, lightweight design for an electric motor, now capable of generating one megawatt of power. Let me put this into perspective. When fully assembled, the motor will weigh around 50 kgs, which equates to, equates to 17 kilowatts per kilogram. This is important because it's considerably more powerful than the 13 kilowatts per kilogram that NASA has identified as necessary to power large electric aircraft. It could really help power flight in things like the new Samson Switchblade, which is a street-legal, three-wheeled car that with a single push of a button turns into a fully functioning airplane. It's like all of our childhood Lego dreams coming true. Oh, uh, so exciting. I mean, who doesn't want to be a Top Gun? Now, the call sign Maverick is taken, Shasta, but what do you think your call sign would be? Oh, throwback. But I would absolutely be the flying doctor, right? Because I like my doctor of like flies and flying things. You see what I did there? Copy that, flying doctor. This is <laughs> Velvet Thunder. I read you loud and clear. You're, you're a solid one, Velvet Thunder. <laughs> Conscious capital. Profit equals people and planet. Today we are joined, joined by the founder and CEO of BOMA, and the co-founder of the nonprofit Ministry of Awesome. Kyla is a truly awesome human being. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Always such a delight to see you and talk to you, Tane. Cool. Well, let's get things rolling. I'm really interested, whatever you're doing right now, let us know what you're excited about because you are always doing cool things. <laughs> you're so kind. I'm excited about a few things, but the first thing I want to um, touch on is something that came up in terms of your introduction of this uh, show, Conscious Capitalism. Uh, I was just part of a group that uh, at an event talking about making our city, Ototahi Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, an innovation hub. And so I've been really reflecting on this. What does it mean to be an innovation hub? And one of the things I just want to put out there for our conversation is that when we think about innovation, I think we often start with an assumption that innovation is about technology or research and development. And the thing I wanted to bring up to you today is this question of when we want to be innovative, what do we want to be innovative in or for or about? And so when I was uh, thinking about this, this conversation that I had at this event that I was just at, my idea here is 
I think we should strive to be innovative in how we engage with our First Nations peoples. I think we should strive to be innovative in building cultures of connection rather than disconnection. I think we should strive to be innovative in building healthcare systems that uh, see us as whole people and focus on well-being rather than uh, addressing uh, sickness. Uh, and so that was something that was just randomly on my mind that I wanted to share with you right <laughs> off the bat for this conversation. No, that's awesome because, you know, I think innovation is sending white guys from all over the place to Silicon Valley and then coming back with a very nice business presentation to share the the innovation theater. Oh, you're so right. I can't believe I got it so wrong. That is exactly what innovation is. Thank you. No, I, for setting I, me I, straight. Think, I, I think this Kyla brand of innovation, that sounds uh, potent. Yes, my kind of innovation for sure. What else is getting you excited? Yeah, so we've been uh, having a really good time with a project we've been working on with, of all things, Crusaders Rugby, the rugby franchise. Now, I'm sorry because... I know Australia is part of the Super Rugby franchise and the Crusaders have just won their seventh straight championship. So forgive me, every Reds and Brumbies supporter out there listening. Um, uh, I don't Look, know if, if you're... There's, if, if there's one thing that we're used to, if there's one thing that we're familiar with, if we one thing that if there's one flavor that we know better than than than, than VB, it's, it's the taste of losing in sport to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may well be the case, but I don't want to be the one rubbing it in. But so here's the thing. I will tell you, look, I have never been a sports follower at all. I just, I'm very much like a bandwagon kind of girl. Like I pay attention when we get to like the gold medal stage at the Olympics or whatever. But I've been working with the Crusaders for two years now. And what I, I cannot believe how extraordinary they are just in terms of human as human beings and in terms of their approach to leadership it's been such a delight and so what we've done is we worked with them to build this um this program it's called the crusaders coaching leadership program and we got to work with four of the greatest rugby legends of all time so kieran reed samuel whitelock robbie deans and the head coach scott robertson razor who is uh, going to be the head coach of the all blacks from next year um, and we built this program that basically allows us to kind of transfer their leadership insights to anyone um, in a way that is um, totally accessible, that is virtual, but makes you part of a community so that you can connect with other folks around the world. And it's for something that we're doing for leaders from all different uh, domains. And it's so exciting to me because... Like I've, I've never been into rugby and here these guys are, they're talking about everything that I talk about, everything that I care about. They're talking about making time to see people for who they really are. They're talking about putting the person over the player. And all of a sudden it's like, it's not about sports at all. It's about the kind of leaders that we want to see in the world. And, you know, Tane, you know, but your audience doesn't, my vision is a world of intentional, intelligent, courageous leaders. And anytime I get a chance to play with folks on that front, I'm, I'm a happy girl. Yeah, it's my kind of party. And I, my dad's from New Zealand, hence the name Tane, but my Kiwi relatives are very jealous about what you're doing with New Zealand rugby. It's cool. And helping the kids out to be better leaders. That's just awesome. It's so much fun. And, you know, so I'll tell you, so I, I'll just tell you a story. Like we had a guy in our most recent cohort. We run them as cohort-based courses. So they're, it's a, it's a group. You go through it together as a group and it's a two-week program. There's a fixed start and end date. And everybody connects with everybody else. So there was a guy from Perth on our most recent cohort. He's coaching under eights. His team is the Bunbury Barbarians. And he, on the last day of the program, this guy, his name is Thomas Greaves. He doesn't know. I hope he's okay. I'm telling the story. He goes onto the program and he goes, I got to tell you, I'm applying learnings from this program in real time. And the results are extraordinary. First thing he did, he decided to apply a theme to his team. So the Crusaders talk a lot about theming. 
The theme that he went with was from the Jungle Book. The strength of the wolf is the pack and the strength of the pack is the wolf. He said he also borrowed unashamedly from the Muhammad Ali poem, Me, We, which is something that Crusaders use all the time, and worked it into a daily affirmation that he does with his kids. So now, every time he gets together with his little under eights, he goes, who is the wolf? And they go, me. And he goes, who is the pack? And they go, we. And he goes, what is the name? And they go, Barbars. And he's like, the increase, the like uplift in motivation and connection and joy is just real time immediate. It's so freaking cool. And that, I mean, you know, how could you not be happy going to work with those kinds of stories? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Kyla, you've, you've reminded me, I actually saw in my own sector, so in, in entomology and insect science, uh, I was doing a talk last year and uh and and this brought me around to the um the the information that if you name a species your your name as a scientist goes at the end you know like lots of things are attributed to, to darwin and 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 um linnaeus and and stuff like that uh and so there's there's as this sector which has been very white very anglo very sort of traditionally academic it's it's one of those many spheres that is really lacking in traditional cultures uh traditional languages and traditional voices which is kind of uh what I was doing my my talk on I had the opportunity to name a Tasmanian species and and thankfully I got to the 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 sort of the cultural crossroads where I was then able to collaborate with the Palo Akani language program. It's the Tasmanian Aboriginal language. Uh, and, and so have a, a Palawa word, which it was given as the species name. So Amazing. I was, I was so happy to be part of that. And so I was researching this field and uh, and I found another example just from a couple of years ago from New Zealand, uh, which, is, which is such an inspiration to me for its uh, cultural integration uh, and its, its sort of Maori cultural forwards. Uh, and there's some uh, New Zealand scientists who named a, a pygmy pipe horse an absolutely delightful creature about the size of your little finger. Uh, and they were the first people in the world to name a species not only in the language of the iwi of the of the area, the the tribe, but to then acknowledge that iwi, that group of people who speak the language the species was named in. And that was the first time that a name has ever been published in that in that way. And that was in 2021, which is an awesome achievement and just like a grievous gap to have existed for so long. But, but this has basically just got me around to thinking, like you have obviously not started your life in New Zealand going by your accent. And I wondered if New Zealand had drawn you in or if it's a particular hotbed of this sort of progressive thinking and these, these inspirational leaders... How has that intersection come around for you? Yeah, look, I've been in New Zealand for uh, 18 plus years and I moved here with my now ex-husband, uh, who is a wonderful man and still a dear friend. Um, as far as I can tell, that's pretty much New Zealand's primary immigration strategy. They send their best and brightest overseas and tell them not to come back until they have a warm body with them. Um, I will say... 2012 was a really critical year for me. 2012, my marriage came to an end. I stepped down from a startup I was involved in. Um, my uh, mother wasn't well back in New York. Uh, we have a family business, had a family business in New York that needed a lot of attention. So kind of all of my ties to New Zealand got severed. It was right after the earthquakes. It was a very unsettled time. All my ties to New Zealand got severed. And there was lots calling me back to New York where I'm from originally. 
And that was the moment when I decided that this was really home. And that was the year I became a citizen. And that, that was kind of where I got so connected. And I feel like potentially, you know, I, it's it's very kind of you to suggest that New Zealand is like a hotbed of progressive innovation. Um, I think there are extraordinary people everywhere we look, and you know certainly Future Crunch. You know you all are the masters of finding beauty uh, in on all corners of the earth. Um, but there there I've certainly found my my community here for sure. Yeah, New Zealand is wonderful. I wish to go back fairly soon. Hey, so you know that we're all about courageous, intelligent optimism, especially in making businesses that work not only for people, but the entire planet. And you've done a lot of work around courage. I mean, you've even hung out and been trained trained with Brene Brown, right? And you're a certified Dare to Lead facilitator. And I know you've worked with hundreds of people to increase courage as a core competency measure and part of their business. Tell us a bit about that, because we have a lot of young entrepreneurs and business owners that listen to the show, and they would be very interested in your journey through Courage. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So I had the extraordinary privilege of training with Brene Brown uh, four years ago uh, to um, facilitate her Dare to Lead curriculum, which is her work specifically as it applies to the organizational context. And uh, I run that material now for uh groups for open enrollment groups, for groups within organizations. Uh, but, you know, I've facilitated that for, for thousands of people uh, in the past four years. And it's such a privilege because that work only gets richer and deeper the more we delve into it. Something that's incredibly important to me is to know that whatever I do is robust and credible, that when we scratch the surface, there's going to be something there underneath. And I've been not only scratching at the surface, but digging at that, uh, at that COPA, at that, at that work for, for four and a half years now. And and I, I have yet to get to the bottom, and I don't think I ever will. So what happens is, um, you know, I, what I can do is I can ask uh, any group of people who among us wants more courage for themselves or for their leaders, and I will get 100% putting their hands up, yes, give me the courage. And then what I'll do is I can put up a, a list of the indicators of a lack of courage in our organizations, the number one indicator being that we don't have hard conversations. Yeah. And then because we don't have hard conversations, all sorts of other things flow. We lose trust in each other. Uh, we talk behind each other's backs. We don't deal with diversity, equity, and inclusion because those are the hardest conversations we can have. We don't deal with fears and feelings because it's hard to talk about fears and feelings. We have all these other issues that flow. We get stuck in setbacks. We have cultures of shame and blame, like all these issues. And I'll put up that list and I'll say, who among us, not in our current roles, because I'm sure your current role is awesome, but who among us at some point, and maybe the previous organization is familiar with these indicators of a lack of courage and every single hand goes up because of course that's our norm, right? We've built this norm where we're kind of expected to be miserable five days out of seven. And that to me is not only unconscionable, it's like it's almost criminal that that should be the case. And I believe that the reason for the gap between those two things, because I think it's so curious, how come, how can it be that 100% of us want more courage and 100% of us, our lived experience is that of a lack of courage? And my belief is that the reason for that gap is because we treat courage as something you're either born with or you're not, when in fact it is a muscle that can be cultivated and trained and strengthened like any other muscle. And once we start investing in the cultivation, the strengthening, the training of that muscle, then we can build cultures of courage. And, you know, this is what we do in my organization every day. It doesn't matter how big your company is. I work with the C-suite executives from multi-billion dollar, you know, publicly traded companies. Uh, we apply it every single day in my 13-person company. It doesn't yeah. matter how young you are uh, in terms of your organizational maturity. It is something you can start today. And I will also say that 
we invest in my organization, we invest very heavily in our culture. We spend an hour a month talking specifically about our culture. We survey every single month. We do all sorts of stuff. And when we first started doing all that stuff, there was a bit of a feeling of like, oh, maybe this is overkill. It seems like a lot of time. And what I can tell you now is that my entire team knows that we could not afford to not make that investment. It enables us to achieve so much more, so much more joyfully, so much less stress than we could otherwise. So, um, so that kind of stuff is, is something I obviously very passionate about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you, you should be and yay. Um, if I was going to the courage gym, if Shash and I were going to go work out our courage, um, what sort of routine would you give us that might help <laughs> other people? Where do yeah. we start? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that whenever we do courage work, like there is a ridiculously strong, almost universal seduction to focus immediately on how the courage stuff applies to other people. So like people come on <laughs> Dare to Lead program yep. and they're always yep. like, what do I do? Because my boss doesn't want to have the hard conversation. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what I can tell like it's universal, totally understandable, totally normal. And there is no joy in that. <laughs> like, yeah, 100- I would absolutely love right? to find out how to get other people exactly. to do more hard work than, it, than me. Exactly. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> I would love that too. Let me know. What what just tell us what to do. Don't make it hard. <laughs> so all of the gold is in like focusing on ourselves. Now, you know, through the Dare to Lead curriculum, we've got four specific skill sets, which are our ability to lean into and navigate vulnerability, our ability to turn our values from fluffy words into tangible and practical behaviors to which we can hold ourselves and each other to account, our ability to trust and be trustworthy. We've got a, a, a seven elements of trust that we go through in detail uh, and our ability to kind of rise from setbacks because, you know, one of the things we know from this kind of work is that if you're brave enough often enough, at some point it's going to go terribly wrong and what you choose to do in that moment is like the difference between whether courage is like, was like that shitty thing that you tried that one time. Can I say that? Whether that was that thing that you tried that one time that didn't go very well, or whether it's part and parcel of how you choose to show up as a leader. Um, But one thing that I will say, if I'm giving, if I'm going to give you one exercise to do at the courage gym, the number one thing that I would say is so much of that work is about what I call strengthening the witness. So there's a model that talks about each of us having inside ourselves a judge, a victim, and a witness. And the judge is the part of us that is like, wow, you really suck. You you don't belong here. You're terrible. Everyone's going to find out how much you suck. And the victim is the part of us that kind of agrees with the judge. It's like, yes, yes, I accept your judgment, your punishment. I deserve all this. And the witness is the part of us that can mm-hmm. notice that. And I think it's something, mm-hmm. there's something really interesting there because it's not a cheerleader. It's not a part of us that's saying, no, you're awesome. You're the best ever. It's the part of us that just can notice what's happening. Why? Oh, look, I'm judging myself in that way. Huh? And I'm agreeing with myself. Huh? And I'm feeling stressed and I'm wanting to go on the attack in response to what this person is saying. And I feel defensive and cultivating that part of us that is aware of our own reactions, our own behaviors, the things that drive us, the things that make us angry, the things that make us scared. That is probably the most powerful thing that we can do if we want to invest in cultures of courage. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the practice of mindfulness, just being aware 100%. of your emotions and noticing that they're a part of you, but they, they're not you. And if you feed them, they will take you over. And yes. talking about shit hitting the fan in life, it does happen to everyone, but it's what you do with it that counts. And if you continue focusing on the negative stuff, that'll begin to make you anxious, depressed, and take you over. So it's really important to 
hold be a witness for the feelings and the trouble that you're going through and then don't let it own you it's just a moment in time yeah for sure for sure we talk about um uh, our emotions being like fish in a lake and our job is to be the lake not the fish Ooh. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Get get wet and hang out with the fish. Yeah. Hold Kyla, on. it sounds it sounds like the kind of sort of emotional intelligence which is a bit lacking. I, I mean, as an Australian, at least in Australian culture, in in interpersonal relationships, uh, the kind of hard stuff that we might avoid on the everyday as well. Look, it's not an Australian thing. <laughs> this, I, I look. It, it's just. It's not something that we teach, right? This isn't. It's not in our curriculums. Not in, not in our school system. Not in New Zealand. Not in the U.S. So don't don't feel like uh, Australia is at any kind of disadvantage here. Um, and a hundred percent, you know, dare to lead. The Dare to Lead curriculum specifically is about the the organizational context, but our systems, and when I say our systems, I'm referring to our physical body, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, like the the totality that is us. Our systems don't distinguish between, oh, this is a work context and this is a personal context. And, um, you know, really what I say is this material is only useful to the degree that you have to engage with other human beings. And if you don't have to engage with other humans, then you don't need it. Too easy. Yeah. But you still have to engage with yourself. So you might as well have a little little bit of knowledge. There's no there's no escape. There's one person you can't get away from. Conscious capital. Net profit to net zero. All right, Kyla, tell us about the Ministry of Awesome to wrap things up here today on Conscious Capital. Oh my gosh, Ministry of Awesome. Uh, you know, I founded that organization with three amazing friends and colleagues. 12 years ago. And uh, I stepped down uh, about six months ago, finally, as a trustee. And it is such a cool organization. It is a force for high growth entrepreneurs in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, They're doing work with all sorts of entrepreneurs. They're doing some amazing stuff with uh, women founders. They have an Electrify Accelerator for women founders, an Electrify uh, Conference uh, for women founders and startups. They're doing uh, stuff with Maori founders. It's just grown the innovation ecosystem. uh, in Christchurch and in, in New Zealand so much. And last week, uh, I was at the High Tech Awards in New Zealand uh, in Christchurch. And it was the first time in years that they've been held in Christchurch. And we had 1,100 people, which is the biggest one they've ever had. And the the tech sector is growing so much in this country. And I think it, it it's a big, in no small part, because people have been working for years and years and years to step by step by step lay that groundwork. Um, and so I guess my final thing I would say is to anyone who's listening to this program, if you're working on something that's like a big, far away, massive challenge, that every step you take towards that challenge will get you closer to that goal. And even if it seems like it's taking a long time, look, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I know that we will together make something so much more exciting for future generations. So collaboration, that's me. Collaboration always trumps genius. And you are an intelligent, courageous optimism who goes out there and helps make it happen. Kyla, thank you so much. We love you. Delicious. We, we really enjoyed having you on the show. And where can people get a hold of you if they want to go if they wanted to be part of join the justice crew join the (laughs) justice crew i mean you can find me on linkedin i I, i'll always connect with folks on linkedin and you can uh message me at uh nz.boma.global all right i think i can wrap up with everyone needs more people like kyla in their lives 
So on Conscious Capital, we use gold-plated research to explore the fundamental technologies shaping our future. Now, we used over 40 references for this episode. So if you're interested and want to keep up to date, sign up to our Future Crunch weekly newsletter. It's full of cutting-edge developments in science and technology, plenty of stories of progress around sustainability, human rights, conservation, clean energy, and the best business thought leadership we can find from around the web. And of course, just look up Future Crunch on all the social media platforms. And I would like to end this episode with a quote, which is always nice. It's by Aeneas Nin. Life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. So stay courageous out there, stay classy planet Earth, and don't do anything we wouldn't do. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, host of Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I've been interviewing people who have achieved huge things in life and uncovering how they keep it together and how they survive the struggle to success. You can listen to all of my podcasts on Apple, Spotify, just search Nick Brax, Soul Trader. When you finish binging all of my shows, be sure to check out the rest of the Disrupt Podcast Library, The Business Lounge, The Next Shift, Global Disruptors, The Advisory Board, and Conscious Capital. Maybe you own a business or an entrepreneur or just simply want to improve yourself. Disrupt Podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio.